going to read the scriptures tonight in two different places. We'll start first in Matthew chapter 5 at verse 43. The Sermon on the Kingdom of Heaven, Matthew chapter 5, the verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now we turn to the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 12. And our text, as given in our bulletin this, today, is the verses 14 and 15 of this chapter. And pointing out to you that, as we would commonly know, this chapter begins what we call the practical section of the doctrine of the epistle to the Romans. Um, more concretely, if we look at the first verse, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God there are the summary of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Paul has been explaining to us the profound mercies of God rooted in his eternal predestination, in justification, sanctification, the gathering of the church. And the Holy Spirit tells us that those mercies of God to us call out to us, and they call out to us to live a new Christ-centered life. Verse 1, a living sacrifice, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God, that we be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the word of God. So that's the beginning on the first two verses, and then as we read this, verses 3 through 8, the apostle is going to apply that to how we live in the church. And then in verses 9 through 16, and our text is part of that, in verses 9 through 16, he's going to call us to a sincere Christian life, love for each other, a sincere Christian love, and what that looks like. And then in verses 17 through 21, he's going to teach us how we must respond to those who do evil and hate us. So reading God's word in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation or hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one toward another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. May God sanctify his word to our hearts. The text tonight that I call your attention to is verses 14 and 15, where we read, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. As I was just saying, verses 9 through 16 in this chapter are teaching us what a true Christian love will look like, what it will be. The apostle speaks to us in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. That is, let not our love be a fake let not our love for one another be a wax mannequin. Let it not be a mask over us, 
hiding behind in our hearts enmity or wicked feelings, but let that love be that genuine love that is from heaven, that genuine work of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God. Let our love be genuine and sincere. He does not leave it in the general, but he immediately turns after that to the specifics. He's saying, he says to us that that genuine love will be holy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. The love of God is pure. The love of God is chaste. The love of God expresses itself in pure, sanctified actions, speech, and deeds towards each other. He goes on in verse 10 to say that that unhypocritical love is an affectionate love. It is a kind love. It is a brotherly love. It is a self-denying love. We prefer the other over ourselves. It is filled with tender affection. He goes on in verse 11 to say that that genuine love is a love that is busy, busy in service, one to each other. It's not slothful. It's fervent in spirit. Then he says in verse 12, that that love will be an encouraging thing to each other because we will encourage each other. We will be patient in tribulations. We will be instant in prayer. We will rejoice in hope. And then, verse 13, that genuine love of God will be showing hospitality. We will be moved by one another's needs. We will open our homes one to each other in true self-giving hospitality. We will participate, literally. We will communicate in each other's needs. Now, in verses 14 and 15, that true love of God, having said all of that about that true love of God, the Holy Spirit now says that true love of God will be seen in our reactions, in our response to those who persecute us, to each other. When one rejoices, we will all rejoice. To each other in our tears, when one weeps, we will all weep. He's talking about reactions, immediate reactions. True love of God is seen in how I respond. We know about reactions. We know the reaction when a driver cuts us off. We know about the reaction when a cold snowball hits us in the back of the head and the snow goes down in our, in, behind our shirt. We know about our reactions when the child does it again. But now in our text, The Holy Spirit is talking about our spiritual reactions, the reactions of the love of Christ in us, and it's choosing three specific areas. How do you react when someone does evil to you and persecutes you for the sake of Jesus Christ and your confession? How do you react, secondly, when perhaps you, in a way of trial and in a way of hardship, And your brother, you see your brother is blessed of God, and he is rejoicing. 
Thirdly, how do you react when you see another person in the congregation weeping and you yourself are busy and you have a thousand things to do and you know that to be involved with them at this point and with their trouble is going to be very time-consuming and messy. How do we respond in those circumstances? The true love of God is seen in the reaction It's seen in the response. The Holy Spirit teaches us that our flesh, instinctively, automatically, it has a default response. It immediately responds in circumstances like that. When I am persecuted, I curse and I hate. When someone is joyful while I am downcast, I envy them and I am jealous over them. When another has a problem, a deep problem, but I'm busy or I'm just indifferent, I say, well, that's your problem. But the love of God does not respond that way. That grace of God, His love in us, responds in that we will bless those who persecute us. We will rejoice with those who rejoice, and we will weep with those who weep. You may put it this way, The love of God, that love of God from heaven in our hearts by grace, though it be a small principle, that love of Christ always comes with bit and bridle. It always comes with the restraint of God's grace. The apostle says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13, the love of Christ constrains me. It holds me back. It prevents me. My flesh is like an untamed, wild horse. The grace of God and the love of God restrains me. My flesh. Let me be offended. Let someone be happier or have it better than I think I do. Let someone's needs become so great that I must set aside everything to deal with this. My flesh responds. But love responds otherwise. And we say, Lord, how? How can I do that? And we go back to the first verse. I beseech you by the mercies of God. When we are aware of God's mercy to us and when we are under the shadow of that cross personally and consciously, love will respond to the glory of God. Or you can put it this way. Our Christian life, our Christian love, can't get off the ground. It can't fly. Unless we are consciously under the mercies, the knowledge of the mercies of God to me. I call your attention then to responding, our Christian response to persecution, to joy, and to tears. So first of all, to 
our persecutors. We read, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. And the Bible speaks to every one of us tonight, from old to young. It speaks with absolute certainty and clarity that everyone here who will walk in faith and live a godly life shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted, shall suffer persecution. And Jesus himself said to us, he left these words with us as disciples of him, that true disciples, true discipleship involves persecution. Matthew 10 verse 22, ye shall be hated of all men for my sake. Verse 24, the disciple is not above his master. The servant is not above his Lord. He's saying to us, you cannot expect the world to respond to you any differently than it responds to me. It responded to me. If you walk as my disciple, as Christ in you, you can't expect them to treat you any differently. Verse 25, it is enough that the disciple be as his Lord. If they have called me Beelzebub, the prince of demons, what will they also call you? Again, you perhaps are familiar with the text in John 15, verses 18 and 19, where the Lord says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus says, as a Christian, saved by my grace, you no longer belong to this world system, to this world, but you belong to me. You are an alien, and they will know that. They will sense that. He says to us that as Christians, we have been chosen. I have chosen you, elected. And there's nothing that man hates more than the doctrine of God's sovereign elections. The Christian, we Christians belong by grace to Christ. And therefore, they will identify us with Christ and treat us as they would treat Christ. And our text itself brings that inevitability of persecution out. If you look at the context in verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. The word given is really the same word as persecute, and it means to track down. So the apostle in verse 13 said, you need to track down hospitality. You just don't think about it. You need to track down the needs of each other, and you need to be engaged in those needs. Track it down. And then he says, if you do that, you will be tracked down. Same word. Bless them that persecute you. If you pursue hospitality, if you live your life as a Christian, if you Receive into your home in the time of war. 
those who the world, Christians, who the world is seeking, if you receive them, if you pursue hospitality, they will pursue you. If you track down as a young person, as a child, if you track down in your life and you involve yourself with the saints of God and with the church here, and if you stick with the church, the world will track you down. And that persecution takes many forms. It can take the extreme form today of martyrdom. Jesus says to the church in Revelation, some of you will be put to death. The scriptures teach us that from Abel to Stephen to the reformers at the stake who died at the stake, the child of God may be called upon to be a martyr for his faith. And in this dark day, that's not beyond imagination that that will come to us. We are not exempt. And when we hold fast to the truth in Christ, our children, ourselves, are not exempt. And we see the state policy of many other foreign countries against Christianity, India, China, North Korea, Angolia, Angola, Somalia. We see that, but we see in our own society that the identification of our Christian truths and Christian principles are considered an evil by our society. The truth that God made them male and female and that man with man and woman with woman is an abomination to him the truth that marriage is a lifelong bond, that sex is only for marriage. These things are identified by the world as being bigoted, being hateful. And then the false church. The false church, more and more, the Bible makes clear. We don't have time to go into all of that. The false church will be the leader in this persecution. They will say to us, when we take the scriptures in their truth, they will say, you are ignorant, you are uninformed, you are teaching hate. And then Jesus says it will come also into our own family. May God be gracious to us. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. And everybody here all of us tonight know how we can avoid this. We can avoid this. We can turn it right off and we will not be persecuted if we deny him. How will we respond to that persecution. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now note with me first of all how we are not to respond. And when these words come to us as the chapter made clear 
we may not retaliate. In verse 12, we read patient in tribulation. In verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. In verse 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourself. We may not respond in rage. We may not respond in anger. We may not push the automatic button of our flesh. We may not become a hothead. We may not pay him back. We may not give it to him good. Take someone with us then. The flesh considers such statements. Nobody pushes me around. The flesh considers that brave. They consider that great. That's weakness. That's sin. The flesh says, oh, go down swinging. That's noble. No, it's not. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh the flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Blessed is that man whose trust is in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. We are not to retaliate. We are not to curse. Bless and curse not. And that word curse there, the thought is not primarily don't use bad language, don't swear at them. That's not the point. But curse means do not call on God to curse them. Do not ask God to damn them. That's what we read in Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Do good to them. Pray, said Jesus. Pray that God might change them in his mercy. Think and act and speak to them at that moment in a way that shows that the Spirit of Christ is in you. Pray for them then. Now maybe you say to me, but pastor, what about those Psalms that we read? And they pray for the destruction of the wicked, and they ask for God's judgments to consume them from the earth. What about that? And the answer is in one sense very simple. But it's very difficult. Insofar as those who persecute us are God's enemies, we'd ask that God will judge them. That God will show his honor. That God will bring his justice to those who defy him. But insofar as they are our enemies, we ask God, Change them. Convert them. We may not pray for our sakes that God judge them. It's very easy at this point to deceive ourselves and to believe that we are cursing the world around us because they are God's enemies. 
when the truth is more often that it's our own personal ire and anger against them. If you look in with me a moment into Luke chapter 9, verses 51 and following. If you open your Bibles to that, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And Jesus here is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. He has set his face as a flint. He is steadfast, verse 51, to go to Jerusalem. And verse 52 tells us that he sent messengers before his face. He's in Samaria. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him. This village did not receive Jesus because his face was as he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, Zebedee is thunder, the sons of thunder, when they saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias, Lord, they're not receiving you as you're on the way to Jerusalem. Elijah called down fire upon the wicked. Lord, should we do that right now? Verse 55, and he turned and rebuked them. He turned to them. He looked at them and he rebuked them and he said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. The Lord says to them, You don't know what spirit you are to have. You don't know my spirit. You don't know who is in that city. God is going to settle that with that city. You should pray for them. And then we remember that when the Holy Spirit is poured out and Philip the evangelist goes forth to preach, and where does he go? He goes into Samaria. Perhaps he goes into those very villages that did not receive him. And God was pleased to work. God says, don't you mix it up. You pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Bless them and curse not. Two times, the text says. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Commit thy way to the Lord. Trust in him. First Peter 2, verse 18, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. And that means not only that we are patient, but it's a step higher, it's a step more. We bless them. Now we know that we can bless no one. We cannot bring a blessing to anyone. It is God 
who blesses. And so we are asking God, according to his grace, to bless those who persecute us. As I said, that God would work in them according to his eternal election of grace. We are invoking God's blessing. We say, or the the scriptures say to us, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord cause his face to shine upon thee. And we know that blessing comes alone from God and that that blessing of God comes only upon those who are in Christ by his grace. And so we are praying, we are taught to pray for their salvation, for their conversion. Lord, according to thy will, may it be that thou will bless this my persecutor, my enemy, the people who are causing me pain, the people who are ridiculing me on this job site, the people who are attacking me, the people who are saying evil things against me. Perhaps they're even screaming in my face as, as a bigoted person. Perhaps they're punching me. Perhaps they're setting fire to the church. They're beating my children. Lord, according to thy grace, according to thy will, bring them to repentance that they might know thee. Bless and curse not is the Holy Scripture. Do we know what spirit we are of? And the text tells us we must continually do this so that we do not do it just at first to their face in a very controlled moment. And then we go home and re-rail in our hearts over them. We don't say, well, I did my duty. I acted pretty nice. I didn't blow up. But now, Lord, settle the score. Bless and curse not. Bless. And Acts chapter 7 is a powerful example of this in the stoning of Stephen. even when the stones were bouncing off him and he was down on the ground and he couldn't defend himself with his hands any further and he was about to die and they hated him. He kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And God answered, And God answered in the Apostle Paul who was holding their coats so that they could throw their stones. The Apostle Paul who said, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I pursued them. I went into their homes. I dragged them out. I dragged out their children. I consented to their death. God converted Paul. God, by his grace, will use the right response in the heart. He will use the right response 
in the heart to your wife. He will use the right response in your heart to your husband. He will use the right response to your child, to your wayward son, to someone who has it out for you. And if he doesn't, or if he doesn't show what he does in that person's life, God is glorified in you. And he will give you his peace. Bless and curse not. Now how will love react when it comes to the total opposite now? If we come from the total opposite of the contempt of this world... And now we stand amid our brethren and sisters today and we see that some of them are rejoicing. Rejoicing in God. While we ourselves today might feel ourselves deprived and feel that the hand of God is heavy upon us. How shall we respond when we see each other rejoice? Rejoice with them that do rejoice. And now let's understand that the joy that we have, that we're witnessing in each other, is not that joy of the world, but it's the joy of receiving the blessings of God in our life. His gracious goodness to us. And God shows that to us. The joy that is in vine here is not the joy that sometimes we have of vain boasting when we're full of ourselves. We're, we're happy over ourselves, over our successes, over our abilities, over our accomplishments. And we make ourselves insufferable before each other. That joy, James 4 speaks of, when we boast of everything that we can do and all of our plans and all the great things are turning out for us, when we say, I'm going to go today to this city and to that city and I'm going to sell and buy. And James says to us, we know not what is of tomorrow. And then he says this to us, but now ye rejoice in your boasting. You're boasting about yourself. You rejoice and all such rejoicing is evil. The rejoicing in mind in our text is not the rejoicing of self-boast, but it's not the rejoicing over sin. When we rejoice over how we're able to put people in their place, it's not over our exploits and evil deeds. And what we did, shameful things. And we boast about them. And we join each other at parties. And we talk about how drunk we were. Or how loose our tongue became. Or how we had a great time talking about others. 
It's not that vain rejoicing, but the rejoicing that is in mind here is that rejoicing over the goodness of God. And we see that in others. And sometimes we see it that they are being blessed in a way that we would covet for ourselves. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. It means don't have a grudge, yes, but once again, the bar is set higher in Jesus Christ. It's not just, well, nice to them. But it means that we are happy and praise God for the blessings that he gives to the other child of God. And we feel with them the joy of the Lord. We are genuinely before the face of God happy. The Apostle Paul is an example of this. If you read his epist the epistles of Paul very carefully, you'll find him doing this to the churches all the time. When he received reports of God's blessing upon specific people, when he received reports about God's blessing upon specific churches and the peace that they were enjoying, when he received reports of other pastors and the labors that they were performing, this would make him happy. He would offer up praise to God. And he would often do this, as we know, when he himself, when he writes the prison epistles, at Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, he himself was in prison. He was sleeping on straw. He was cut off from fellowship. He did not say, I wish... Timothy, you told me about how it's going in Ephesus. I wish I were sitting in that parsonage. I wish those things would happen to me. God has me in this prison cell. He rejoiced. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. And so it's a warning. It's a warning against the sin of envy and jealousy. The example I would use, boys and girls, is the example of Saul, wicked King Saul, against the young soldier David. He was not happy about David. David had skill, he had leadership, he had winsome ways, he had courage. He had great ability with the sword. And Saul immediately understood that though he was the tallest man in Israel, David was shading him. And so the song came out, you remember? The song that came out, and when it started, the first line, the first, first lyrics of the song were great for Saul. The women began to sing. Saul had slain his thousands. Imagine. Shamgar only killed 600. Saul has slain his thousands. But David 
has slain his ten thousands. And David, you remember, is defeating Philistines, God's enemies. But Saul would have been happier if the Philistines had killed him. If God's enemies had triumphed, then that David would get more glory than himself. And so now, sometimes we see God's blessings upon others. We don't see that same blessing, perhaps. It's there. We don't see it. But God's blessing is upon us tonight, whoever we are. We are in Christ by grace. It is very hard for me, very hard for you. We struggle with this. It may be that things are not going well with me, my home, in my marriage, at work. It may be that I'm experiencing what Asaph experienced tonight. Waters of a full cup are being wrung out to me. My children are not doing well. They struggle in school and other children so gifted. My job is not enjoyable. I'm not looking forward to that tomorrow morning. And other guys can't wait to get there. The house is not a very nice house. God withholds things from me. That's the way I feel it. He withholds a boyfriend. He he withholds a girlfriend. He hasn't given to me marriage, and my classmates are married. He, though we have prayed, has not given us a child. We, in our old age, don't have grandchildren. I don't have the friends that they have. Their life, when they're older, is very active, but I am confined to a wheelchair. It seems that the hand of God is upon me and is open unto others. God says, rejoice with those that do rejoice. And again, the standard is not, well, Just be apathetic. It's nice that they have that. No. Rejoice. Rejoice over this. Don't fake it. Don't grimace within and fake it. But put that to death. Let's put our envy and our jealousy to death. Put it to death. By the grace of God. Fight it. Why? Because if we don't fight that envy and if we don't fight that jealousy, it is going to embitter us to God's will for my life. And I'll never see the blessings of God upon my life in the way that He is leading me. And I will be, though, the man who criticizes God for His arrangement of things. And I will close my eye to His blessings and I'll sulk. I will simply sulk instead of rejoicing, 
Rejoice with those that do rejoice. And the answer, how, is found exactly in this epistle, in this chapter, verses 4 and 5. We are one body in Christ. The blessings bestowed upon each other are blessings bestowed upon us as a body in Jesus Christ. We are all together one body. Would your broken ankle begrudge your shoulder and your bicep, which is gaining strength because it has to use a crutch to help your broken ankle? No, you wouldn't begrudge that. So the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 12, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And when one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. And when one member is honored, we all rejoice with it. The Bible says that I can commit schism, division in the church with my attitude I can commit division in my family and marriage with my attitude but we can also bless the church the marriage the family with our spiritual attitude in how we respond when God blesses someone. The shepherd rejoices over one lost sheep. The angels rejoice over one penitent sinner. We rejoice when we see God's goodness poured out on undeserving sinners like us. And when God shows out his blessings upon others and leads me also in a way of blessing but different from others, I must not shrivel up. But I must rejoice in God's goodness. Love, the love of Christ, rejoices in another person's joy. And then finally, how will we react when we see the opposite of our brothers and sisters, not joy, but tears? Weep with those that weep. And this too, this weeping, is also a certainty. As children of God, we know that this is part, sometimes a very large part, of God's will for us. Weeping. Weeping may endure for a night. There is weeping over sin. And its consequences in my life. There's the weeping that God does not despise of a convicted, broken, 
hearted sinner, weeping in sorrow over sin. There's the weeping in death, the death of a spouse, the death of a child. There's the weeping over abuse, over scars, deep scars in my soul, over hurt. There's the weeping of loneliness. There's the weeping of the vanity of this life. Heavy, heavy weeping. Proverbs said, the soul knoweth its own bitterness. The Lord knows. The Lord knows our weeping. He knows. And he heals. But this scripture says that we are now to weep one with each other. This scripture is telling us that the bond of the grace of God in the congregation, we are one body, produces empathy. Empathy, spiritual empathy of the love of God. The ability to feel and to weep before God together. The love of God is not calloused indifference. It's not detachment. But the love of God seeks out, prays for, feels the burdens one of each other. The three friends of Job came and sat with him for seven days. That was good. We criticized the three friends of Job because after the seven days of silence, they went south. They went wrong when they opened their mouth. It would have been better if they had had nothing. But it was not wrong that they went and they just sat with him for seven days. That was good. In our empathy, sometimes we're silent. We don't know what to say. But our hearts groan before God for them. It is the compassion of Jesus Christ that he gives to us when we know him. It's the gentleness of the Lord, the understanding of the Lord that he gives to us. We weep. We weep because we are in the flesh. That is, we have a body. We have feelings. And so Paul says, Hebrews 13, verse 3, remember them that are in bonds. Remember those Christians who around the world are imprisoned right now in North Korea. Remember them as bound with them. And as them which suffer adversity as being yourself in the body. You have a body. How would you feel? You have a family. How would you feel? We weep with each other because, as I said, we are one body in Jesus Christ and the nerves of Jesus Christ's grace runs through all the members of the body. And we weep with each other because we know our own sin. And we can't have empathy with anyone in the church unless we know that sin. This is love's response to the hatred of persecution. Bless. This is love's response 
when the others around us are enjoying the blessings of God, rejoice. This is love's response when the members of the body of Christ are weeping. Weep. How? How, Lord? God says, I beseech you, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. Under the shadow of the cross. Confessing our sins. Seeing his grace. And I say, and you say with me, Lord, may my reaction, may I, my response be pleasing to thee. May it be the expression of genuine love, the love that thou hast given first to me. Amen. Lord, we thank thee for thy word. We pray that as it exposes much in us, that it may also expose thy work in us. And that we might, O Lord, be committed after those mercies of God to bless and curse not, to rejoice and to weep. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.